With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Homeschooling still, except my kids are both in college. Um, my daughter went in at 11 years old, full-time, bio. And my son is graduating and just got offered quarter of a million bucks to do his PhD. And he's 16. So I, I, I guess we taught him like we coach. <laughs> he watched it well. She did well. And I, I was involved, which uh, <laughs> I couldn't have said earlier in joking. my coaching career, you know, I'm only joking with you. I know. Oh no, believe me. It's 90% her, <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to know, I want you to know I was involved and I, you know, it's funny because I even give you credit and other great coaches credit for um, how we, how we can interact with our own kids, even though they're academically minded much more than they are um, athletically minded. And, uh, you know, just the, just the, I was just working on a, on a homeschool forum this morning and just saying, you know, as a swim coach, we designed accountability and you can do that in homeschooling yesterday. They could, they could, you know, these five out of 10 of the vocabulary words you spelled correctly and could define today. You can do seven tomorrow. The goal is to do nine. It's very much the same. And then I've got, I did, I went and broke down every, every, um, everything there is in public school and put them in an Excel spreadsheet, just like we did in swimming. And I gave them, our kids, a one to five on each part of the thing. So their, their listening skills were worse than their, than their, you know, whatever other skills it showed. And it said, well, we can do more on that. And then I put a link to people, I would say like you and like me, who are good at certain teaching certain things. And they could go and watch that. We've never lived in a time when you could get better, I think, in swimming or anything else. So I learned that from you. So thank you. There's very many moments where I wish I was coaching full time, especially as I interview um, so many people. I mean, we interview all kinds of great, great coaches and I'm working on software with uh, Ron Aiken. And I kind of wanted to show you that because I've got to I'll be able to uh, share the screen to do that. Um, just kind of give ideas. Um, but oh, my gosh, when I see what he's doing and how much fun he's having and many of the Australian coaches, how, how much fun they're having, it makes me jealous. <laughs> so in my swimming world. I, uh, I do, um, I, I coach three days at a university, um, just underwater video and, you know, technique stuff, mostly some psychology, as I'm sure you've never coached without some psychology, even when you're doing practice, um, you know, practical stuff, not that psychology isn't practical, but it's not as measurable. And I get to do that, but, um, and I do one-on-one, -on -one, you know, I'll actually, actually even get in the water with a camera and we'll film them, we'll talk to them. And I'm not, I actually have some people coming from different teams and we train them, you know, a week or, or one or two or three times a week in addition to their home coach. And they have to, to do that. They have to send me all of their workouts and their velocities. And then we just make up for what the coach isn't doing. So some coaches know I'm working with their kids and some don't. <laughs> so, but either way, they get the, they get the, uh, they get the pat on the back because, you know, we, we don't make it public sometimes. 
So that's kind of fun. So that's that's the extent of my of my swim coaching really right now. And then this magazine is a is a you know it's pa- I'm passionate about that. Have you seen much of it? No, I haven't. Okay. John Urbanchek the other day, I was trying to interview him. He's 86, so he makes us look young. Um, and he said uh, he does read the magazine. So I hope you do. I'll send you a, a link and, of course, to this one, too. Okay. But we've had some, you know, yesterday I had, um, oh, gosh, uh, John at uh, the World Swimming Coach Association. We had uh, Jennifer for uh, American Swimming Coaches Association and uh, International Swim Coaches Association next week. Just kind of getting an idea. But and I want your opinion on this, too. So we'll kind of start is um, my opinion, first of all, is that swimming has a long way to go. When you look at running or anything else and you see someone, if you saw Usain Bolt running the 1500 meter, I think you're I think both of us will fall over in our chairs. Right. But you see um, and, you know, even even 400, um, you just don't see a Katie Ledecky on the four by 100 relay or four by 200 relay, Michael Phelps world record in the 400 IM and on the 100 relay. I just, I just think we have a long way to go in terms of the specialization of highly gifted people in different, in different things. When you look at Petey, he may be the first one where we say, gosh, you know, he's good. He's only good at one thing and that's good enough, you know, but, but they, they very much specialize him in the hundred and, I don't know. What do you think about that? Do we have a long way to go or do you think we're, we're pretty close to the, the, the limit of what swimming can do? I think uh, the only limits we have in swimming is the limitations of thinking uh, by our best coaches. Mm. I think you're limited only when you uh, don't see. Uh, you look in the rear vision mirror too often and not through the windscreen often enough. Um, so you reflect more than you look into the future. So I think the swimming has a long way to go, but I think it's going to take a new attitude to coaching, a new uh, belief and confirmation of both coaching and training skills and selection of the athlete. I have a philosophy uh, that uh, you have... uh, I, obviously white fibers and red fibers, but uh, you try and identify the pink, the salmons of the world. Mm. Salmon is a fish that can swim long distances at very fast speeds. So for me, Michael Phelps is a salmon. Uh, Ian Thorpe is a, a salmon. They can swim the shorter events and transfer it to the longer events very efficiently. I uh, did a workshop with some coaches in Australia and I asked them to design how they would design a practice. Uh, All girls swim the 200 free that I'm going to mention, Mm. some better than others, but they all swim it. Kate Ledecky, design a a training program for Kate Ledecky uh, from what you know now, the designer a practice for uh, Emma McKeon, for what you know now, and design a practice uh, for uh, um, the 200 meter girl that won the Olympic, uh, that won the 400 at the Olympics, and mm-hmm. ask them 
what's the difference? What's the difference between setting a program, individualization and specialization of the 200 meter women's free? Lebecky, right. Emma McKeon, and uh, I can't think of the girl's name right now, but the girl that won the 400 free at the Olympics. Right. And design a practice. Tetmus. Tetmus is, yeah, you're thinking of Tetmus, yeah. Yeah. Think of all three women, uh, just physically, not emotionally, and how you would write a training session for each one of those three. Obviously, Ledecky's going to come from a very much endurance-based program with some speed. Uh, Emma McKeon's going to come 100% from speed, uh, but extended out to the 200. And Titmus is going to be in the middle there somewhere. She can bridge that uh, 200 up, Ledecky's uh, 800 down, and Emma McKeon's 100 up. And how, then when you come up with a solution, when you think that that through, when you give that a lot of thought, then say that, how would I apply that to the much bigger, larger muscular uh, makeup of a male swimmer? So think of the three males uh, that would fit the same categories. And what would be the difference of your design or practice design to produce a similar result? Like those three girls are outstanding women. And you can't, uh, and they came from three different backgrounds. Yeah. Fitness comes from uh, Vauxhall, which is a very much <clears throat> endurance based program. Uh, 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 Emma McKeon with Michael Bowl comes from uh, uh, an endurance based program, but where she moved to the speed element because uh, Michael saw the gap. Hmm. And Ledecky, of course, comes from an unbelievable distance background. So right. if you take those three examples, design a practice uh, in your concepts from that and then apply it to men's swimming. And then if you do that, you will understand the difference between male and female uh, physiology and muscular application of force in the water and, uh, and recovery. So it was a good thing to do, uh, in my opinion, you know, of all the coaches we did it with, none of them really understood the concepts of individualization and specialization. And I think that, for me, is the future of coaching, the ability to individualize any given practice and to make it specialized in uh, the muscular makeup of that individual. So uh, I think that uh, found the coaches that I did it with wanting, and I just asked them to do it. I didn't provide any input. They said, well, you need to go away and work on that. There's yeah. a project for you. Because if you yeah. understand that uh, at the highest level, you can understand it at the development level. Too many times we try to develop an athlete uh, like Emma McKeon uh, trained with her father Ron and uh, Ron's a great coach in his own right but Ron was smart enough when he, when Emma got to a certain age he sent it to Michael Bowl yeah. to work with now I coached Ron McKeon as an athlete I coached his uncle Robbie Woodhouse I coached 
the mother, Susie Woodhouse, and I coach Michael Bowl. So historically, I look at what they did. And I asked Susie, the, the mother, Emma's mother, uh, how did she feel about how I coached her? Did I get it right? Uh, well, I think, you've, I think you've got to do that. If you're, if you're yeah. a, a courageous coach mm-hmm. um, and you want to learn, you really have a, a real desire for learning and development, you have to talk to a lot of you. I, had a, I put a group of girls together from Tracy Wickham in the very early days, uh, the 400 free, right through uh, to Lauren Boyle of uh, more recent times, uh, Delfina Pignatelio from Argentina. I put them together and I said, I have three questions for you, the whole group of girls, everybody in between. And there was a, a group of about 22 women who had all medaled on the podium in the 400 free over from 1978 to 19, not to 2000, wow. and 16. Now I said, I've got three questions for you. Was I too hard on you in expectations and accountability? No good having expectations without accountability. Mm-hmm. Was I too hard on you as an athlete, as a person, when I coached you? A lot of laughter. And uh, after the laugh was settled, they come back to me and said, no, at the time we thought yes. At the <laughs> time sure. you coached, we thought yes. But now, nowadays, no, we don't think so at all. So I thought, good, that's a tick. So I said, the next question is, do you feel like you achieved your best outcome given what you've got? training with me at that period of time. And uh, much laughter again at my expense. <laughs> they all came back eventually and said, no, Bill, uh, we think we've got our best result training with you at that time. I said, well, that's, for me, that's two confirmations of my coaching. I don't want to ask the third one. One of the girls who coached, I coached a long time ago came out and said, Bill, we're all big girls now. Ask the bloody third question. So I said, okay, well, I'm really not going to take a lot of notice of your answer, but I'll ask it. She said, well, okay. I said, okay, the third question is, given your time over, would you train with me again or coach with me again? Well, that was even more hysterical laughter. And they all said, no way. <laughs> We're very intelligent. We... But anyway, after a couple of days, they came back to me. Uh, all but two of them said, yes, we have no problems training with you again. Yeah. I think you have to look at ex-athletes that you work with, no matter whether talented at the global level or just talented individuals who won state or uh, did well at the more local competitions because your job is a coach. Yeah. I always believe that my job as a coach is to, to develop optimal outcomes for the athlete in advance of their talent, whatever that is. Not everybody's an Olympic gold medalist. I'm going to judge my coaching by the percentage of athletes that I coach to an optimal outcome 
uh, based on their, their potential, but without rationalisation. I can't say they only had 90% attendance or they didn't try hard 60% of the time or they came late, left early or any, there's no, every reason is mm-hmm. an excuse and every uh, excuse is a reason when you're in when you're in coaching. So at the end of the day, and I'm sure John Abanchek would say the same thing, um, uh, you can't rationalise. Uh, you can't rationalise uh, because it's your responsibility. If the athlete's not coming to workouts or practice, then why are you coaching them? Uh, right. like why have you made commitment? Like I give, when I coach, I give 100% without reservation to the athlete I'm working with. I don't, my uh, commitment to that athlete is not limited by family life or uh, study or work. It's 100% commitment. When I walk through the door of the pool, I'm going to give totally and individually to that athlete. And that's how I judge myself these days. So, yeah. To do that, you want to know that the athlete is going to give the same commitment. Right. If you've got an unequal partnership, in other words, you're giving 100% and the athlete's giving 80%, it's never going to work. That's the very thing that that Dean said about Ariane is that he saw her, he saw her talent. And when he talked to her, he wanted to find out, "Are are you as dedicated to this as I am as a coach? And do you believe that I can be as dedicated as you are as an athlete to your success? And I just think um, that the interview, I don't know if you saw it, but the, you probably did, I would guess, because it was in Australia and it was on some popular show. But the, the interview they had with them was, was just priceless in terms of the relationship that they had with each other, um, almost to the extent, well, her, her parents said they're like a married couple. They argue or they whatever, but it's always about going forward into his, his, uh, he told at that time that he sat on the bus. This is something I bet you would do in your younger years and, and, and watching him, watching him say it was made me laugh, but also I understood it where he, he saw that Ledecky didn't have a coach at one of the meets and sat behind her on the bus and looked over her shoulder to see what she was texting about (laughs) splits and how she was going to warm up or work out or whatever, trying to get every bit of information. He said he watched every single one of her races to find things that that they could take advantage of, and I mean, I don't. All these things are are. It's funny. You would expect it in professional sport. You know, the professional team sports. Our football, the best soccer co- or other football coaches called every other great team sport like like basketball, et cetera. You would expect that they really they look over film and they really try to analyze. But how many coaches do we know? that will do that. I mean, I went, I did last week, I did, that's why I'm too bad you didn't, but last month I'll send it to you, but I did an, an analysis between Titmus and Ledecky after seeing that interview. And I was seeing things that he was saying, we caught her in the, in the, in the, in the turns. And I looked at the previous videos, sure enough, Ariane caught her on purpose, not like, oh, well, just, we made better turns, you know, she <laughs> caught her on the turns. Ledecky bends her knee on the up on an up kick and lifts her head a little bit in the stroke. I don't know who's saying anything to her, but I, I, I could tell immediately that Dean would have, you know, and I don't know how I can't wait to interview him. Maybe you can give me his, his contact because I, I bet he's pretty popular right now, but I would love to hear him say, yeah, <clears throat> we saw that as an opportunity. 
And we also saw the opportunities within our own swimmer to, to beat somebody. And it was really okay to say, I want to beat you. I know a lot of swimmers that won't, that won't commit to that. I know, I know that's something that you teach too, is it's really okay to commit to something that you may not do, but you have to have that full passion. And I, and I got the feeling Ariane did. And we look at her physically. I just, I don't, I don't see why she beat Ledecky, you know, and, and physically, but, but with that passion between the coach and the swimmer, I think, and the, and the, and the focus on each component of what you could do to get better. I think, um, I think we can all learn from that. If you Google Michael Phelps at 11, 11 years of age, mm -hmm. and then you realize what a brilliant job uh, Bob Bowman and his staff did with this young man from 11 to 15, just a four short year period. Yeah. Took, and Michael Phelps at 11 circled the lines, this is a competition, circled the lanes, uh, streamlined off the wall like a starfish, uh, <laughs> legs and arms everywhere. Yeah. Uh, very great talent, but very for poor skills and technique. I always say to athletes, your skill level has got to be in advance of your talent. Uh, whatever talent you've got, your skills must be better. Yeah. So uh, every session you have to have skill level in advance of your talent, whatever your talent is. If you're going to win the uh, district championships, then you have to have skills that you need to win an Olympic gold medal. If you don't, you're going to underachieve. So we combined and wrote, I think it was about 60 odd rules for the swimmers on the team. The very first afternoon, I walked out to the pool and he was one male swimmer so in the middle of the pool, cursing and swearing. I pulled him over. I said, look, you just signed an agreement. He said, yes, I did. He said, and I know you're going to ask me about swearing. I said, I am. He said, I wasn't, I wasn't on the deck. I was in the pool. The, the thing he asked me to sign said, no swearing on deck. <laughs> Typical kid. So we turned everybody into a lawyer. So I went straight back and said, Dennis, we've got to rip that agreement up. And we just wrote an agreement that each athlete would agree to the conditions and terms laid out by the head coach. No interpretation problems then. And the expectation was perfection. Mm. And I think you've got to have that. So um, uh, we looked at uh, perfection in performance. Michael Phelps on the average team anywhere, for, don't just say America, but at average team probably anywhere would have been the anchor on a relay, might have made the national team on some program in the, <laughs> in the 100 fly and the 100 free. Maybe he'd swim the two. He's ADD. Maybe he'd go through school. Maybe he'd go to college, but eh, probably not. And so he would have been a really good swimmer, but he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have been who he became without the negotiation and the planning and all the stuff that went into his career. Ron Aiken sent me his entire planning for four years, the previous four years and the present four years. And then I interviewed Simon. He said, you know, that guy has been really patient, but he's not doing much different than he used to. He just continued to plot along doing the right thing. As you said, for every swimmer that you take on, whether they're going to be high profile as he's got right now or not. 
he, they were warming up. Okay. So I had talked to him where we, we sat down for almost three hours working on his software. We're trying to write to reproduce what he's been doing. Right. Cause he's, you know, he was probably a sw- He was probably the coach at the Olympics that no one knew. He wasn't even hardly supposed to be there. He finally got to be in the stands. That's how we treat him because we're not looking for the kind of coach that's optimizing talent. We're looking for the kind of coach that is blessed with talent that will score. And that's, that's an American problem. Hopefully it's not an Australian problem. I know you guys have actually, your people have actually talked to him, but here's what I see. When I see his planning, I see you, I see the way that you plan. I see it combined with the way that I've done some things for, for tracking that, you know, in my book and stuff. Um, And I see him, I see him hungry to be better all the time. So I see this girl warming up. He's got three Olympians in the water. This is just a meet. This is just a senior meet. It's a nothing meet. He's just started the season, basically 30,000, uh, 30,000 meters a week. His, his swimmers are mad at him because they're not going far enough. That's the kind of back atmosphere he has at the Las Vegas Sandpipers. And he's got one new swimmer since August. She's 14 years old. She just broke the national record in the, in the mile for him. And I went back to her first coach that had her for eight years and I interviewed her. So make sure you watch the next uh, magazine that I put out. <laughs> but because I was very interested in, okay, what is, what did she go through? And she's the perfect storm because her, her age group coach is really meticulous. The same 40 minutes for warm up, the entire season, the entire, all the drills and the stuff they do, the times they look at the stroke count. And he's the same way as a senior coach. And my point is that, okay, he tells me just like I have right now, I have three computer screens in front of me for doing this magazine and for doing coaching. He does the same thing for analyzing every workout, individualizing. This girl is, is 14. She's six foot tall. Okay. Yeah. But lots of people are six foot tall. When I watched her warm up, I didn't even look at the Olympians. This girl went out in 28 and came back in 28 in the hundred free. And Mark Schubert walked up to me and he goes, I've never seen that. Not in a 14 year old. She, she, she even split it. Um, then the next day, she tied the American record, which is not easy because it's Sippy Woodhead, 36-year-old American record in the 200-meter free. Um, same thing, even split. 400, you know, is pretty good. And she's good at the other strokes. But the point is that she's in the perfect storm. The same tall girl on an average team would probably be the, you know, anchor on the 13-14 relay would make seniors, might make trials, but she was the youngest one that made trials in our country. Um, but if you don't treat her right, if you don't encourage her, if you don't measure her kicking, I mean, just like that, if I say, how fast does she kick? Ron answers, you know? I, I say, how many strokes to anybody on her team? Completely coincidental. He told me, we always count strokes. We do no garbage yardage. I mean, this is something I pick on a lot. Peter Andrew was on our Olympic staff, instead of Ron Aiken. <laughs> so maybe that's part of what it takes for us to improve this sport is to make sure that the national governing body is led by somebody like you. And how do we get there? How do we, well, maybe nobody gets there, but how about all this waste? You know, L- L- Lydia Jacoby would never, if she hadn't had that year with, with a guy that I had mentored, and I know you, you've mentored a lot of people too. I, fortunately, during the interview, he said, you taught me the recovery of breaststroke. And I was in the front row of a seminar you did in Alaska. 36 hours later, I raised my hand and I said, do you think I could be a world-class coach? 20 something years ago. And you said, yes, I forgot him. I'm sure you do this too. I forgot him, but I could see something in his eye 
And I could see something in the questions he was answering or asking and the answers, the, the way he was writing down the answers and videotaping, this guy was going to be great. How do we make more coaches great? How do we identify, even if, if you have swimmers that don't look like they're going to go to the top and put you in the newspapers or whatever, are, do you treat them the same way as you treat the other people in building an environment where you can take this, this, this Claire Weinstein, her name is, and make her the very best she can be? Is it all connected? In, in today's world, uh, if an athlete comes to me and says, Coach, I want you to help me. I want to be better. Uh, all my coaching is on improvement. If you're improving, you're going to get to the destination. Mm -hmm. If you're plateaued, something needs to happen. Something needs to change. You have to stimulate or influence uh, stagnation. No matter what age you are, it doesn't matter whether you're 45 or, or, or 15. You've got to be improved. Swimmers retire not because they stop winning, but because they stop improving. Mm. So there's got to be an annual improvement rate. You've got to address annual improvement. These days, I ask the swimmers four questions. Instead of the 60-question protocol myself and Dennis had, <laughs> I just ask the swimmers four things. What are you, and I ask them to write them down, all in one, less than one page. What are your goals and targets? Goals relate to competition. Targets relate to preparation, and they must be aligned. No good saying, I want to break the world record and win Olympic gold medal, but I'm only going to come four times a week, huh. not going to work. So I want to make sure their goals and targets are aligned right. so we can have a discussion on that. So, okay, the next question is, what are you prepared to achieve those goals and targets? What do you do? You, you want to do extra? Uh, are you prepared to do the volume or the quality or whatever you think is required? Ask the athlete, what are you prepared mentally and physically to do to achieve these goals and targets? Obviously, targets come first, preparation, and goals are responsive to your application of targets. So the third question is, what will you, as an athlete, bring to the team? Will you bring discipline, hard work, dedication, commitment, enthusiasm? I only want one answer. What is the one thing that you will deliver to the team mm. so that the team has a benefit of your inclusion? I want everybody to know that they are important, right. that they can deliver to the team. So what is it that you... Okay. And then... I asked the athlete, what do you expect from me as a coach? Not as a trainer. What do you expect from me as your coach? What will you expect? Do I have to fill your drink bottle? Do I have to carry your bag in and out of the training session? Do I have to keep saying to you more than once, streamline or speed through the turning? And if I have to say it more than twice, then you're not the athlete that needs to work with me because it's not going to work. If I have to say it more than twice or correct it more than twice, now I'm talking mainly senior athletes rather than age group athletes. Sure. But you have to learn that at age group level. Yeah. Now you have to learn that at uh, age group level. So uh, those four questions 
I asked the athlete to go away and write one page based on those four questions. Bring it to me and then we will decide whether this is the best program for you or if I need to help you find another program because we're not going to fit my demands, my expectations, my accountability to myself and to the athlete and not going to fit. Right. Um, now, the word demand in these days is like, whoa, everybody runs and hides. <laughs> but the great coaches of the world had demands and expectations on their athletes. Uh, they didn't, they want to, I always say, uh, benevolent dictatorship is right. the key to uh, improvement and performance. So if you've got improvement, you will get achievement. It's impossible not to get achievement if you're improving. So everything I talk with athletes has got to be on improvement. Where were we yesterday? Where will we be tomorrow? How do we get improvement that's relative to the world stage or to whatever stage you're going to uh, wish to compete at as an athlete? So those four questions have served me well. They're the four questions that my negotiations with the athletes sent us away. Crazy environment when Mark Schubert gets fired from Mission Viejo a few weeks ago. And, you know, Mark and I, well, now it's been a few weeks, you know, he's had a little bit of time, maybe two months or so. And I interviewed him after I interviewed him before and I interviewed him after. And we, we sat down and I said, he had already found another way to, to coach. You know, there's a team down the street and he, and he got together with, with, uh, Schumacher and he, and he, I think his name is any, yeah. And he um, said, uh, you know, I just want the two of us to have a team. And I asked Mark, okay, that's, this is a great question. How do you start a team from scratch? Now, when we, when we first started thinking about doing something like that, we were probably in our early twenties and we didn't know anything, you know, I mean, maybe we knew something, maybe we saw a great coach coach, but you really didn't see the inside workings of how to negotiate with parents or how to have that, that four question survey to make sure that you're working with the, the right athletes to begin with. Now he walked over to, it's basically down the street from mission and he's got already 22, 20, I think 26. I just talked to him at a convention, 26 elite athletes, all of them can final at the U S nationals, right? That's elite for us. Cause that's pretty hard to do. And he's um, with three, 400,000 swimmers or something. And he's got, um, he's got those same rules you do though, you know, and, and uh, do you want to improve? Um, he keeps most of the stuff in his head. Ron writes almost everything down. We've got all kinds of, you know, we've got some coaches that are more stroke coaches, some coaches, are, and I'm sure you see that everywhere that some coaches have different talents than other coaches, but maybe I'll ask the same question of you is if you had to start a new team today, it sounds like you would start it exactly that same way. You start with, well, I guess part of it is too, how do you convince the people around you? And you did this masterfully in Great Britain, and probably not so masterfully, I think you said in um, Hong Kong, for example, how do you how do you get those around here? I mean, they're athletes. I've never had problems with athletes. I have problems with everything else, and it's very common. Jack Simon was the the perfect one to interview about that. You know, um, I, don't, I think Jack's been on a hundred different teams, but how do you do that? Because it seems like even though you're what we might call a hard ass here in America, um, tough guy and, and, and um, ex have these huge expectations. Um, 
you seem to get along pretty well with people um, who, who are the peripheral, or is that, is that just me seeing the best of the best? When I go, coaches ring me and say, Bill, any chance you can come in and have a little bit of practice? Sam, so, yeah, I purposely arrive 30 minutes late. <laughs> I, I, I purposely go straight to an athlete or a parent mm. and I say, how is the coach performing today with me here compared to how they performed last week mm. without me here? I wonder if the coach is putting on a show. Wow. I hope they are. Because if they're not, then I'm wasting my time being here. Okay. So I want the coach to, to rise above the expectations and be accountable uh, for what they're doing. Mm. Now, that, tells, that sends a message to all the athletes and parents that when Bill's here, the coaching standard lifts. Sends a message to me that the coach wants to impress. And he's, he or she has either done the, the practice yesterday to rehearse what they're going to do today. Mm. That's intelligent. So I want to work with. And then at the end of the practice, I say, coach, who is your least talented swimmer? Who is the least talented? I already know because I watched. Who is the least talented swimmer on your team? They'll nominate X swimmer, say, okay, Mary, I'm going to watch you swim. I want to see you at your very, very best. I'm going to ask you, what's your best stroke? She will tell me. I say, okay, I want you to do 50 perfect slow motion, no splash, strokes, and measure how far you go. 50. 50. It ends up being 500. So in my program... And we start off at 50, but the athlete has to do 500. Perfect technique, silent swimming, no splash technique. And we test that frequently to see efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. You can't coach athletes to any goals and targets unless you start with efficiency. And if they're not efficient, then that's your job. Your job is to make them efficient. Whether they're the most talented swimmer on the team or the least talented swimmer on the team. An observation of coaches, not such a good observation, I might add, but I find the coaches with the most talented swimmers are the least effective coaches because they rely on talent to drive the athlete forward rather than their coaching. And I'm not talking about training, I'm talking about coaching. Right. So I ask the athlete then, Mary does a 50 strokes. She either does them poorly or well or perfectly. And I sit down and say, how many hours has your coach spent with you this last season to develop perfect technique? Oh, and then you, have the yeah. then you have the answer. If the answer is not what I value, I never return. Mm. I take the coach's hand and say, keep up the great work. But it's not to my standards. I'm not coming back. Mm. I didn't enjoy this visit, and I'm sure you didn't. But as a coach, you're inefficient. Hmm. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah. But so, yeah. 
I wait then and see if the coach comes back to me within a week. Says, Bill, I took on board everything you said. I want you to come and revisit. So you don't invite him to come back to you. You just find out whether or not he comes back to you on his own. If he doesn't come back, then I never see that program. Right. That coach. Wow. Uh, I don't want to work with inefficient people. I've done that all my life. I'm coming, I'm less tolerant. I asked my three children who are now grown up about three Christmases ago, I want you to evaluate me as a parent. Pretty stupid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to do that now. The three of them, I got a boy, girl, boy. And the boys thought it out and obviously thought, what does the old man want to hear? And they tell me all the beautiful, soft, loving things that you want your kids to tell you. My daughter is in the middle of the two boys, said, Dad, you're intolerant. You have no patience. You get bored too easily. And change needs to happen sooner rather than later. <laughs> so I said, huh? Easiest way to deal with that is I won't be asking you again. I'll just stick with the boys. And you're not so in they, my inheritance, right? <laughs> they tell me what I want to hear, not not the truth. So Dick Schulberg said to me, said to me many years ago, he was facing some some issues, yep. and he said, "Bill, you have to be brutally honest." And he said, "I mean brutally honest with the people you work with, whether they're athletes, staff, parents." So uh, brutally honest, as I believe Mark Schubert is. Mm. Uh, when you interview Mark again, he's one of my favourite coaches because he's very exacting. Actually five going years, on deck with him next week. Yeah. Okay. Five yeah. years ago, I lectured uh, in the International Swim Coaches Association okay. when I was inducted with uh, 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 Bob Gillette into the International Swim Coaches Hall of Fame. When I, got up to, uh, when I got up to do my lecture, Mark zeroed in on me, as did Eddie Reese. said, Bill, Australia had so many number one world rankings uh, for Rio that didn't improve and seriously underachieved. Why did that happen? Had nothing to do with the subject I was lecturing on, but I've always believed Peter Dalen was very good. And someone told me, many, many years ago, that Peter Dalen's in the audience, he's researched the subject matter that you're lecturing on, and he's researched you. He knows more about you than anyone else, mm. and he will know more about the subject, and he will ask the most difficult questions. I'm a quick learner. I said to John Leonard, if he puts his hand up to ask a question, ignore him. <laughs> That's the solution. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Peter came to me after that and he said, Bill, you ignored all my questions. I said, I did for one reason. You know the answers better than I do. Mm. So you should have make a public spectacle out of the well, question. Right. Uh, right. So I think, uh, but anyway, uh, Mark and Eddie asked this question. I'd like to ask them now. What's wrong with U.S. swimming? Yeah. Why, why did you underachieve at these last Tokyo Olympics? So much so that a lot of your number one world-ranked athletes didn't improve and didn't swim well. 
got to be a reason. Yeah. And you've got to fix it. Yeah. You, you yeah. have to take that on. You have to take that on and repair it, whatever it was. I sat back and watched and I thought, God, I don't have an answer for the question they asked me going way back to five years ago from the Rio Olympics. And I don't have an answer, even though it might be obvious to you, uh, why US swimming underachieved and underperformed in, in Tokyo. But I believe, this may not be the reason, mm. I believe US swimming is suffering as we did in Australia, and many countries around the world have done, a loss of intelligence, long course intelligence. Don Gamble's, Doc Councilman's, George Haynes, the uh, Eddie Reese is still there, but Mark Schubert's given him a hard time. These people provided all the answers for many, they provide them for me all the answers to all your questions over a period of time. Uh, the best conference I ever did was one in the US where I never went to a lecture. Never went and listened to a lecture. But what I did, I had a list of 10 questions. The last two or three on that list of 10 were irrelevant. Then I said, who can answer these questions? So I'd say to Eddie Reese, Eddie, can I have breakfast with you uh, Tuesday morning? As soon as I met, I said, Eddie, here's my question. They were brutally honest. They were very up. I got more out of that than I did going to any lecture. Yep. Uh, and Bob Bowman was one of them. And, and I said, here's the, here's the questions that I need answers to improve as a coach. I want to improve as a coach. And they never saw me coach and didn't know me really well, but I wanted their facts. I didn't want opinion. I get opinion from everywhere, mainly my wife. But five years ago, uh, it caught me off guard. What's his response to that question today? Why did the US underachieve? See, complacency is a part of winning. Um, and uh, the Paris Olympics will be very, very different than Tokyo. Uh, provided this virus has disappeared off the radar, may right. not have. Right. But if that virus hasn't, uh, is still on the radar, well, maybe not. But Tokyo, uh, Paris will be a completely different Olympics. Paris will be different uh, because every, see, Australia learned massive, massive lessons and benefits from the pandemic. Yeah. All our coaches were all focused on traveling around the world to swim in Ricky Dick short course competitions that had no meaning or value. Um, we didn't value the history of the camps. Uh, so you guys have, in university, you have endless camps. Um, we don't. Australia doesn't have. You say, in Britain, if I said to the swimmers, right, we're having a three-month camp in a warm-weather camp in Australia, I'd be knocked over with people wanting to go. Right. If I said, said that in Australia, they'd all be running down the track away from me as fast as their legs could carry them because no one wants to do a three-month camp with me. So <laughs> uh, Paris will be different because your universities will be back, hopefully under the guidance of experienced long-course coaches.
very important. Okay, yeah. Under the experience, and, and you've got such value of people that you can call on. The Schubert's of the world, and the Eddie Reese's, and now Eddie's short course uh, yards at a university, but he has the ability to convert to long course. Sure. So coaches should be saying to Eddie, tell us what you know about converting short course outcomes into long course outcomes. What are the keys? What are the essentials? And he's got such value and knowledge there. If they're not doing that, then will you improve in Tokyo? Probably not. Greg Troy and I sat together before the uh, Olympics in uh, Rio, mm. uh, well, 12 months before, and said, let's see who we can pick the winners for the events in Rio. Mm. And we had them sealed up. I didn't open them till after Rio. <laughs> we had appalling results, both myself and Greg, of what the outcomes were. Wow. So in other words, high-performance outcomes at the Olympics are not predictable. Mm. I always thought they were. I always looked at the top six in the world the year before and said, if you're in there, you've got a chance. That probably hasn't changed much. That if you're top six in, at the end of 2023, you've probably got a good chance, a reasonable chance of meddling yeah. in 2024. But right. there's three positions there that aren't going to meddle. How do you identify them against the three that are going to meddle? And that's key. The way you do it is look at performance partnerships of athletes and coaches in their history, historical uh, element. If you look at the 400 IM, you can see that the 400 IM, both male and female, have been coached by similar coaches over the last four Olympic Games. So I got uh, Jody Cossa, who uh, was our biomechanical analysis, very good one, very exacting. I said, Jody, I watched you in the warm-ups. You're sitting there doing nothing. Here's a list of coaches. I want you to video them in the warm-ups. I want you to video coaches coaching at the Olympics in the warm-ups. And uh, I targeted a couple of people in particular, and uh, they had very common characteristics. The, at that stage, the only Australian coach who coached at the Olympics the same way as he did every day on deck was Michael Bowl. Mm. What you got from Michael Bowl every day on deck is what you got from Michael Bowl at the Olympics. No uh, change in body position, body language, no panic, very calm. I didn't see that. We didn't see that in any other coach. And we've showed the coaches, and I think that's had a massive influence. Coaches need to coach at the Olympics the same way, same methodology. Uh, otherwise, athletes read you better than you read them. Yeah. And if got any signs of panic or differentials by coaching on deck every day and at the Olympics, the athletes are going to perceive that as panic. Did you actually see that? Did you actually, could you, I mean, when you retro, obviously, oh, yeah. you know, but well, you saw that some panic in some of the coaches and you could see the results in the athletes. 
yeah. saw panic in 95% of the coaches. Wow. Uh, facial expressions, positions on the deck. Uh, uh, if, I'm not saying I did this, uh, but if I videoed Mark Schubert at the Olympics, on um, several Olympics, it never changed. Oh. He was same, balanced, uh, driven, passionate coach that he was when I visited him many times in his programs uh, in America. Yeah. So we knew what to expect from Mark Schubert. And we knew Mark Schubert, hi Mark, stands at the competitions with one hand on the brake rope pole and times turns and talks to athletes. He has a vision of his athletes looking from the break. So the very next competition, I made sure I stood in that position. So I knew it irritated the hell out of me. <laughs> that would absolutely so, make him mad. <laughs> Sorry, Cheryl, I almost said something else. Yeah. So, <laughs> I did it just for the enjoyment of doing it. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it later. But the, uh, the U.S. has such untapped resources of people like Eddie Reese, Dick Schulberg, Mark Schubert, and just uh, tremendous uh, man management uh, of athletes and systems. And, and uh, I think if you're coaching in a group of parents, Today's world is every parent thinks they're a coach. Not every parent, I'm being, that's being yeah. a bit harsh. Sure. But a lot of parents get on the internet and read about what techniques should be using. How they... I have a copybook technique for all four strokes and breaststroke kick and dolphin kick, underwater kick. So six models. I show athletes ad nauseum these techniques, because I've learned that teaching um, athletes are way better copiers than we are teachers. Mm. An eyeful is better than earful, I'll say, but they copy, especially if they're instructed to copy. Now, they don't copy uh, exactly, but if I show a young athlete Ask how many swimmers in the United States at 12 years of age have sat with their coach and viewed Michael Phelps swimming in slow motion. Mm -hmm. And then immediately, not, not later, immediately, the coach says, now hop in the pool and I want you to swim 50 strokes like Michael Phelps, whether it's fly, back, rest or free. I want you to swim 50 strokes like Michael Phelps. How many have done that? Yeah, well, there's one other component I, I think is essential is then we did this in the camps this summer because we finally got to do camps, you know. So all of a sudden, everyone came to us. We had teams from all over the place at Cal Baptist where I, where I was doing the camps. But I made sure because I get to design stuff that they all had a cheaper version of the ice swim where there you put a camera on it. And I got these cheap cameras from, from China that were too cheap. And a lot of times they didn't work, but most of the times they did. And they had well, to film themselves. They had to film themselves and tell us and tell us how close 
they got to what they just saw the model swimmer do instead of me doing it. And then without me talking, I was really interesting. They got to do it again and again. And my point to coaches was you're too much the center of the universe. If you've got 30 swimmers and you're talking to one, there's 29 you're not talking to. But if they can, if you've educated them well enough, your point exactly, then they can look at their stroke and say, oh, I'm crossing over. Oh, I'm a little late on the rotation. Oh, I'm, my, I can see my eyes coming into the wall. I shouldn't be able to see my eyes, just the top of my goggles. I get it. Let's do it again and again. And then call me over when you want to be coached. Yeah. Don't make me impose myself on you when I'm taking time from 29 other swimmers. Where, how many other swimmers? You know, Ron only coaches 12 at a time, which is pretty cool at, in, in Las Vegas Sandpipers. And they're really I mean, that'll be the guy in Paris. You better watch. But the um, I'm sure everybody's watching everybody. But, you know, we're still watching everybody. But he's I'm, I'm I'm not easy to impress. However, that's something he doesn't do. And I would recommend that that would be the next level of giving the responsibility of coaching to the athlete and then be their mentor, almost like you are with the um, with the great coaches that you get to work with either under you or where you've learned from. Empowerment of the athlete for the technical aspects of their performance is crucial. Mm. I don't particularly go with empowerment of the athlete as such uh, because the athlete, has to, it's a partnership. The coach, Duncan Lane, an old coach from New Zealand, he gave me some great words of advice. He said, Bill, the athlete feels what the coach can't, but the coach sees what the athlete can't. Mm. So it takes a partnership of those two uh, sensations, the athlete's feelings and the coach's observations, to mould the athlete into an invincible uh, technique-driven performer. Um, I went and worked and watched uh, many times Cirque du Soleil, which I love. Yeah. And uh, I like the performance. And you would see the young, uh, first time I went, they, all the performers uh, had mirrors and makeup tables and they would spend an hour and a half putting their makeup on, even at training, at rehearsals. But mm. what? Swimming coaches, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't tolerate that. <laughs> I hope not. We'd, we'd have them in the pool practising and practising and practising. Right. Right. Making mistakes, making mistakes, making mistakes. Oh, embedding those mistakes in their head so that they're almost yeah. impossible to change. Yeah. So I said to the, the, the head of the Cirque du Soleil, I said, I could improve you. <laughs> so why not tell me how? I said, makeup. So what a waste of time. He said, Bill, you didn't see it. He said, the makeup is team building. They all talk to each other. They're sitting only a couple of feet apart pre-pandemic, only sitting a couple of feet apart. They're looking at themselves. They're trying to do the best makeup job they can. Yeah. They can share with each other. They sit in a different chair every day. They don't sit. Today they sit in this chair. Tomorrow they might sit in that chair or the next chair. Right. First in, best rest. And he said, now watch. And the young girl who was going to get onto the, uh, uh, the Russian swing, which is the most dangerous apparatus in, in circus acts, goes like that. Huh? big plank of wood and two men get on it, two gymnasts and get the swing to a certain level that's timed of speed. 
and then she has to jump on that swing at top speed. Dangerous. Right. Very little gymnastic skill. Then behind her or in front of her is five Ukrainian, Russian, Eastern European bodybuilders or weightlifters standing shoulder to shoulder, standing on each other's shoulder. Five of them. Right? So the strongest guys at the bottom holding the ankles and so on up. And uh, when she's ready, when she's in position, she's got the swing going, not doesn't take too long. She says, go. That the, the guy standing up know that the next swing towards them, she is going to release, do a triple somersault, and land on the top guy's shoulders. <laughs> if she gets it right, it's over. One chance. If she gets it right, if she misses, for whatever reason, someone has to catch her, one of those guys catch her, they all come crumbling down. Everybody, everybody is irritated because the head of the circus is going to say, right, everybody back to their makeup tables, we're going to do it again. Mm. We're going to start not just do the exercise again, we're going to go through the routine, take your makeup off, put it back on, talk to each other. Wow. Discuss the problem, why it failed, and we're going to go through that same process again. Now, if you want to see irritated people, <laughs> that's when you see them. Yeah. But that is performance. Now, the performance of this young girl and these four, five guys is such that it requires more accuracy in preparation than it does in the final. Uh, 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 act that night under the spotlight of the lights and the cameras and all that. So the demands at preparation are greater than the expectations at competition or performance. Pretty good rule. Pretty good yeah. principle. Expectations at preparation must be above. And I went and watched uh, Mikhail Barishnikov in New York in his training session. And he said to me, ballet, he said, we are judged on every performance. There's a critic out there who will write tonight on our performance in ballet. It'll be different than the one before. So we have to be perfection uh, and expectations driven because we're going to be judged by a different judge every single night. And if we get it wrong and... Uh, We'll be all over the front pages of the newspapers. If we get it right, no one will say anything. It'll be just that's what we expected from you. So there has to be an expectation of excellence mm -hmm. in preparation. If I think a not, lot of it, I think a lot of the thing we do right or wrong with our athletes is not show them behind the scenes like you are, like you went. You know, I looked at and some's really public. Um, I'm on a I'm on a thing called uh, Coach Up where they 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 match me with people that want to get better and hopefully it's good sometimes it's not I charge too much to make sure I don't get too many people but he's but but what was funny you bring up Barishnikov because Barishnikov came to the United States and he looked at American basketball and went these people make me look like I don't know what I'm doing in terms of movement they're seeing adjusting and because there's nobody trying to stop him from doing anything you know and all these things. 
And then along comes a guy named Steph Curry. Now you may not be a basketball fan, but Steph Curry has actually started, you know, okay. So he started coach up. He helped start coach up. So, and the way he did it was he won the, the most valuable player, which is voted upon by the players as well as uh, other people. But, but the players voted upon him um, to be most valuable player of all the players of all the NBA, the seven footers, all the faster ones than him, all the more talented ones than him. And there are many who are more physically gifted than he is, but he's more practiced than anybody on the planet. At that time, at the end of the year, he went and got a one-on-one -on -one personal coach to get better. And that's who I, I show that, like you would show Barisnikov if you had that film of that practicing, or you'd show Cirque du Soleil. And, and many people would look at you and say, what are you doing? This isn't swimming. But, but my point to athletes is, and even coaches is, you want to be great at something. You can't just stop when you win something. You, you, want, to, you want to be great. You want to be the greatest at something, especially when you take on the role of making, helping people's performance go better. You got to be great. At, you're going to be great at something. You got to keep going. It doesn't just stop. Jack Simon took over my team in Carson City. And he was very successful. He broke all the records I had there. And I broke, smashed all that. I basically built it from scratch. I had to teach people a flip turn. And then we ended up with, I don't know, 20 people in, in the top 100. We didn't get to the very top. And you know, you had a swimmer with me for a while from Hong Kong. And, you know, we did okay. And then I got a divorce and it all fell apart. But I said, Jack, what's funny is Jack came into the program and he goes, you're going to go more yardage than you're, 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 you're used to by far. And you're going to have to, he saved that same speech to every new team he took over. And they all started laughing at him. And they, and they said, you know, we've been a six, they had some t-shirts on that said 16 mile IM long course at 5,000 feet. They said, what are you going to do that Friedrang didn't do? But what I asked him, he goes, you did a great job of making people fit and like it, like the training, like to get fit, all that you did. All that was great. And I said, what did I do wrong? And he said, I really felt like I'm better at, I was better. And I believe this completely right now at preparing people to perform. It was a different thing. I prepared him to be fit to perform. He prepared him to be for, to perform. And when you just brought all that up, it just brought it crushing down on me saying, that's right. I didn't go back and do it. Carly, the, the one I was telling you about in Westchester that prepared Claire before she got to Dan, to, to Ron, does the same warm up every single day. And it's beautiful. Every single, uh, you'll see it in the next month. We, she had a video of them warming up. There's like 40 people in the water. They're all counting strokes. They're all, their elbows exactly where it should be. She's got communicators on her, the thing we sell to talk to people, on every one of them. And she's talking them through every time. They do a, a bad turn. She talks to them while they're swimming. I mean, that's just to be obvious. We do that with basketball and every other sport but not swimming, you know, it's not very often. So we started producing that because we saw coaches not doing it. We don't sell a lot of them. I mean, we, we sell a bunch, but do the coaches actually use them? Well, you got to get them on. They got to coaches, sometimes the swimmers. When I saw their preparation, I have so far to go as a coach and I really pay attention. And, and I'm hoping that this is what we're going to see in the coming generations is that coaches, the, the coaches that we hire, the coaches that we train are going to be so passionate and attractive as you are to people that are so passionate that that the whole thing will work even better than it's worked in the past. And as you said, the difference between Rio and, oh, my gosh, Australia was just a, a role model for the whole world, as far as I'm concerned, in Tokyo. Congratulations, because well, I know you had something to do with it. <laughs> Australia, you've got to remember that 
the results for Australian swimming at, at Tokyo came from a little area of Australia, southeast Queensland. Prince mm. Rally in Brisbane, Michael Vale in Brisbane, Gold Coast, but was Dean Vauxhall, Brisbane, um, a couple from the north coast, um, uh, McEwen. They came from a New South Wales contributed absolutely nothing. Our big population base, uh, their contribution was zip. Uh, they got it, couldn't get it more wrong. Mm. Victoria was terrible. Uh, so the two big population bases of Victoria and New South Wales didn't perform. The only place that performed to about 90% was a little pocket of, of Queensland, southeast Queensland, and it performed because of great coaching. Australia uh, benefited uh, by the great coaching of Vince Rally, uh, Michael Bowl, Chris Nesbitt, and, uh, a group of coaches in a pocket of small pocket because it was accessible to the best physiologist, Tom Vanderbilt. Um, it was uh, every swimmer knew they were going to get biomechanical analysis support and exercise physiology support, and uh, for those that needed it, psychology support in a small uh, area of uh, population and uh, geographical distances. So uh, any country that wanted to repeat what Australia did at the last Olympics could do it from a very small base, uh, which is what happened, and uh, with some excellent coaching. So the excellence of coaching uh, drives Performance partnership. Uh, I, I use Michael Bowell uh, with Emma McKeon, and uh, I consider Michael's best performance as a coach at, at Tokyo uh, was with his backstroke girl, who's a seasoned um, campaigner, but uh, actually enjoyed the success uh, she should have got at previous Olympics, Emily Seabon. He took a girl who was broken down, on admission, broken down, not motivated, having weight issues, whatever they were. And remember, it's just as difficult to deal with that if you're underweight as if you're overweight. Right. So, uh, muscle, you don't lose um, uh, just fat reserves without losing some muscle. That's right. So Michael managed that with this young lady. Excellent, excellent performance. She didn't get the gold medal, but she went pretty darn close. Yeah. Uh, 200 backstroke. I believe that was Michael's best, best coaching feat, more so than Emma McKeon. Mm. So uh, I think you've got to have coaches who can take a negative situation or a situation with negative uh, associations and turn it around. And the only way you can do that is by coaching. It's yeah. nothing to do with training. Training has, it's about coaching. It's about talking with the athletes, giving them uh, expectations. If you came to any one of my programs uh, when I coached, there would be expectations written up on the board. There'd be a set and I'd ask the athletes or I'd put them up myself, what times do you expect to swim in this set? Wow, that's so, great. 
Yeah, write down the times that you expect for the set. And then I say at the end, do you need more rest? I had a practice that I used to do on uh, Wednesday afternoons. It calls an email practice. On Tuesday afternoons, after they finished, and I looked at what they'd done, I would send each athlete an email that night outlining the set for Wednesday afternoon. But the set would be 1650s, 5 100s, uh, 200, 150, 150, four times. I wouldn't put rest intervals on it. I wouldn't put stroke on it. Mm. I left that decision to the athletes. The only thing they had to have was 100% attendance for the previous month. If they didn't have 100% attendance for the previous month, Wednesday afternoon, they're going to do the practice I designed with my expectations. This way, it empowered the athlete who had had 100% attendance, talented or untalented, to come in on Wednesday afternoon. Now, parents would then say to the school, did you get a practice from Bill today, Tuesday <laughs> night? And I'd talk to the parents about it. And if they said no, then you as a parent had to say, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think Bill didn't send you? It's not because he didn't like you, because you either missed a session, came late, left early, you weren't committed. Mm. Now, what are you going to do about that? So have the parents on side, and the parents then start to understand the process. I asked all my ex-swimmers when I trained at the Valley Pool and in Hong Kong, I said, what's the best practice we did in a weekly cycle? What's the one practice you really enjoyed? And uh, it came, this practice came from my early days of swimming in Mount Isa when every afternoon during the school holidays, we just did across the pool swimming. No stopwatch. You had a parent on your lane or a parent, not your parent, that would count strokes and tell you where you came. Bill, 17 strokes, came fourth. Hmm. I had to, had, to, had to deal with that. Was 17 strokes too many, too less? No one told me. I had to work it out. And coming fourth, well, I want to win. <laughs> I don't want to come fourth. Fourth is no good to me. So on Saturday afternoon at the Valley Pool and in Hong Kong, Saturday afternoon, no one wants to attend training. All their friends are having it off. Right. We're going to come to work out. We're going to come to practice because I want to know that you're sincere. But we're going to do relay starts, changeovers, turns, and we're going to do across the pools. And fastest to slowest lined up, when the person beside you goes in, you go in after them. If you touch their feet or someone touches yours, you're staying in the pool. It's only when you can touch the person in front but not get touched from behind, do uh. you get to hop out. Competitive practice. But we count strokes. Everybody had to count their strokes. So in that confusion and chaos of sprinting across the pool, 60 or 70 athletes going in one after the other, when you go in, your feet hit the water, you go. Streamlining, underwater speed, and long stroke. You're trying to touch that person in front. 
no good doing short strokes. You've got to do mm. everything I wanted in a practice. So the things that I would do again is email practice on Tuesday and uh, Saturday afternoon. But the same thing with Saturday afternoon. You couldn't come to that practice. It was called an optional practice. It was optional if you had 100% attendance. Mm. If you had 100% attendance, you could say, I'm not coming to Saturday afternoon without any repercussions or rehousement. No one took that option. Mm. That's why I call it optional. Yeah. No one took that option. So I would have all the parents come down out of the stands, work with a swimmer that wasn't theirs, and all they would say to the swimmer is, 16 strokes came fourth. 16 strokes came fifth. How many, in a, how many in a wave when you had that many swimmers? Did you have like the whole pool and then the next wave? No, the whole pool. Oh, so everybody went at the same time? Uh, 60 no, pieces? everybody went, yeah, but going one after the other. Slowest would go in, next slowest, right on their tail. But, but so all 60 was, people in one in one. Yep. Line, not not like groups of them. One line, yep. sixty something people. Yep. <laughs> huh. It was collective, competitive. See, I think as coaches, we rely on the stopwatch too much, mm. and we don't teach competitiveness at a young age. We I tell coaches not to take splits. I tell them not to. When I'm mentoring coaches, I tell them anyone can take splits and give you the splits right after. But you, when you're not taking, put the watch and writing things down. You're missing the turn. You're missing the breakout, and yep. you're missing that, that spark in their eye, and whether or not they're getting beaten, they're going to do something about it, right? You're looking for things that have nothing to do with a watch. I agree with you 100. percent Yeah. So Wednesday afternoon, after morning off, and Saturday afternoon, and uh, my training sessions um, in in the last 20 years, uh, we didn't train on Saturday morning. I gave them Saturday mornings off at least every second or every third Saturday because it was a chance to go shopping, spend time with mum and dad because they'd spent the week being at the pool at 4.30 or 5 a.m. training, going to school, coming back to the pool. They had long days. Yeah. So Saturday morning, I'd say, hey. So everybody, I never told them they'd all have to come to me on Friday afternoon and say, coach, are we training? I never go with the generals. Are we training Saturday morning? Right. Steve, you've had a good week. Did you deserve Saturday morning rest? Do you think you've done such a good job this week that Saturday morning can be a rest morning for you? So I'd ask them that. And you're not just a bunch of information and a bunch of experience. You make us think. And um, you make us consider whether or not we're the we're where we can help athletes commit more or become better um, because of the experience they have with us. And I really want to thank you for that over over so many so much time. The key is for coaches, they have to improve at a rate faster than the athlete. They have to improve their coaching and training skills at a rate faster. They have to have change-based improvement or improvement-based change at, at the faster than the accelerated rate of improvement of the athlete. And that's wow. not easy. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.